More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Well, welcome everyone. I am delighted to be here with Mr. Conrad Black, uh, who has recently joined the Democracy Fund and has been gracious enough to sit down and chat with me today a little bit about why he's doing that and what we can look forward to over the coming months and coming year. So um, can we start by having you tell us a little bit about what made you interested in the Democracy Fund? Why did you decide to join us? Well, uh, I, I got an invitation from Joe Nadler, the chairman, and then from Ezra, who, uh, as you know, is associated with it, and it, it certainly helped in the funding of it. Um, and I, it, because I think there is a democracy question. I mean, all my life, we sort of assumed Canada was a democracy and the democratic world was progressing well. And, uh, you know, we were the future. And and I, and I still think that that is generally true, but I, I, there, are, there is a considerable and growing level of concern, which to some extent I must say I share, that inadvertently perhaps in many cases, democracy is being encroached upon with good intentions, but in a way that is, um, is worrisome. I mean, there, there, there is too much state, arbitrary state authority in, in democratic countries, including this one. And there is too uncontrolled and unquestioned a growth of arbitrary powers in people administering uh, the laws and regulations. And also there is, a, it seems to me, and I, I imagine many of your viewers would feel this, um, a growing sense of intolerance. I mean. You know, I guess all of us idealize the past in a way that is unrealistic. It's, I guess, a manifestation of the fact we tend to remember what is best and happily allow what was not so good to fade in our memories. But I, I'm not suggesting that in, this is not in some ways the best era the world has ever had. In some ways it is. But it is also true, I think, that um, there there was in, in this country, in any case, uh, some decades ago, a greater toleration for hearing a variety of viewpoints than, than is now the case, and a greater variety of opinion uh, available in the media than is now the case. Now, if you hunt around enough on the internet, you'll find anything you want and a great deal you don't want, but at least there's a variety there. But uh, it, the, the normal day-to-day -day traditional media has become, it seems to me, a terribly conformist and, and rather disagreeable in tone. It, it's, it's a kind of authoritarian soft left. It's like these slightly exaggerated descriptions of the dangers of Davos man, you know, as if the World Economic Forum, which I attended for 20 years, is trying to turn us into cookie cutter people, which is which is unfair, but it is possible if you went to it as long mm -hmm. as I to get that impression. So it, it is a much more loquacious answer than you wanted or that I can justify, but that I, I just feel there is a need to, for democracy, uh, the, the idea of freedom of choice, freedom of action, people free to do uh, as much as they want, anything they want, as long as they're not impinging on the ability of others to do the same and are conforming to reasonable and democratically legislated and imposed laws, 
that that right exists and, and that we've got to defend it. So I, I and I think it needs more airing and analysis than it's been getting. Well, it's so very there's so in much general, in general. There's a philosophical congestion that we want to deal with. Well, that's a lovely turn of phrase in and of itself, a philosophical congestion. As a philosopher, I'm very sensitive to that and curious about that. I think there's so much in what you've just said over the last few minutes. And I think we'll, you as a historian and many other things, and me as a philosopher, will have a, a, lot, of, a lot of material to work over in the next little bit. Um, but even the thing you started with, this idea that there's a democracy question, um, many take that for granted and assume that there is not, right? On, on the other side, that, well, either we know exactly what democracy is or it's not relevant anymore. But some themes in what you're saying are so interesting. This idea that we have been democratic or thought of ourselves as de de democratic. And then there's this idea of power, this, in this increasing encroachment into democracy, whatever that is. And then there's this idea of uniformity of thought and media and individual thought being afraid to speak out um, and this idea of, of tolerance or intolerance and those are all connected in such interesting ways do you think um, that I mean just to get into that a little bit do you think that power or the overreach of power is fundamentally antithetical to democracy is it impossible to have both no no it is not and uh, I would say that the greatest defenders democracy has had, the very greatest leaders democracy has had in modern history, I'd say, we're putting this in chronological order, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, and Franklin D. Roosevelt, all had to defend democracy in wars and in times of extreme tension, when really a semi-dictatorial powers accrued to them. Hmm. And it was necessary to act in this way in order to, 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 protect, to protect democracy. It's one of these paradoxes, like President Wilson saying the United States was going to war because it was a war to make the world safe for democracy. Well, sometimes you have to take extreme measures to protect something, even though those measures appear to be, as you just said, antithetical to what you're protecting. So I, I think we can live with that all right, as long as we can trust the people who are exercising that authority, and I must say, in fairness, I don't believe that, for example, in this country, any of our leaders have ever aspired uh, to be anything other than democratic. And I don't think any of them aspired particularly to reduce democracy, but I think to some extent that has happened. Can I put it in a slightly a different, uh, for look at it from a slightly different perspective? Um, it seems to me, and again, there's plenty of historical precedent for this, that we 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 were very conscious of protecting democracy and promoting it when it was threatened by international communism, particularly the Soviet Union. I mean, there were attempts to subvert all sorts of countries at the fringes between the communist bloc and ourselves, like Cuba and Nicaragua and Afghanistan and all sorts of places. And um, and uh, there was never in, in all of that period any overconfidence in democracy. We were confident, all of us in the, in the democratic countries, that we had the best system, but we were well aware we were being sternly tested. And I thought there was a danger in, in, um, in the aftermath of the Cold War, and when, uh, I don't want to be triumphalist about it, but when we had this tremendous 
strategic victory, the more so because it was effectively bloodless. The United States and the Soviet Union never exchanged a shot between them. And, and the Soviet Union simply disintegrated and international communism went with them. Uh, th there was a tendency to think this is it, there is no more threat to us. And it, it shows that what if we looked at it carefully, we would have known anyway, that the danger isn't always external. I mean, I mentioned Abraham Lincoln, he famously said when he was a young man, no foreign army will, will ever leave the tread of its horses in the Blue Ridge Mountains or water their horses in the Ohio River. Uh, we, will we will flourish as a democracy or we will perish from suicide. And that second is the danger. Now it's been dramatic. I don't think there's any, there's any suicidal uh, process in, in, in underway, but uh, if we don't feel that we're being threatened and have to defend democracy, we forget to defend it even against ourselves to some extent. And I believe that to some extent that has happened. It's very interesting that, um, you know, the examples that you go to, and, and this is very true for me as well, when we're thinking of real, um, you know, defenders, champions of freedom, of liberty, it's often American or uh, British examples, right? So Churchill, Roosevelt, Lincoln. Well, well they're the premier countries in that field. They're the French. Indeed. They're Indeed. So I was going to ask, do you think that, mm -hmm, do you think that Canadians, um, feel a deep sense of importance about civil liberties. Not as much civil as liberties as, matter in Canada. As you know, or I imagine you do, I wrote a history of Canada a few years ago. And the, the principal point I wanted to make was how distinguished the history of this country is. I mean, mm. very few Canadians, in my opinion, have a remotely adequate sense of what a distinguished history we have. I don't mean that in a chauvinistic way, making an invidious comparison with any other country. And of course, Canada has not had, and no sane person would be under any illusions about this, it has not had the influence on the world that the British and Americans have had, but we haven't been around as long, we don't have as many people. Uh, but, but our record is in, I mean, it's, this is not altogether a fair thing to say, but it is true, is a less blemished one than theirs. I mean. Hmm. We need the Americans because they are the great defender of democracy and whatever else may be said about the United States, we must never forget nor fail to be grateful for the fact that we owe the general success and prevalence of democracy in the world and of the free market system to them. And now, when they devised in the Cold War this formula that it was the free world against the godless totalitarian communists, uh, never mind that the free world included all the juntas in South America and General Franco and other dictatorships and the, you know, the Turkish generals when they ruled and Salazar in Portugal and the Shah of Iran and the House of Sauds, uh, didn't matter. Uh, uh, most of these places became democracies, democracy prevailed and the Americans were right. And, and it must be said, they led the West in the Cold War with great distinction. Uh, Vietnam, really the, almost the only strategic area they made. And, and, and they were not defeated, their allies were, and, and the Americans won the peace. But the, um, uh, so, but the fact is Canada has never been in, in an unjust war. It never sought anything for itself in any war. Mm -hmm. And, it, and it, it has never resorted to the uh, undemocratic processes that have 
have been evident at, at, at times in the United States, mainly because of slavery and the legacy of slavery, and at times in Great Britain also. I mean, it, the British record in Ireland, for example, is, is, not, is not altogether creditable, as the Irish, most of them would be happy to tell you. And, uh, and, and Canada has nothing like that. We have a 400-year history, and despite the current fad of castigating ourselves for the treatment of the native people we have we've we have a good record we've been relatively free of hypocrisy not humbug canadians have plenty of that and, and they've plenty of uh, you know pompous aerated nonsense all countries have a mythos and they can become quite tiresome when they expand on it i mean all the year we're all familiar with this bunk that canada's a more caring and sharing place and so on. That's essentially nonsense. But 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 it is a good country with a, with a, with an admirable history, and it hasn't been like falling off a log to make a country out of what is essentially a strip two hundred miles deep and and three thousand miles wide. I mean, ninety five percent of Canadians live within two hundred miles of the U.S. border, but we've made quite a distinguished, successful country out of it. I wonder sometimes what the implication is of that. I, I do detect a kind of resistance or an, a queasiness to thinking too much about or talking too much about civil liberties in Canada. And I wonder sometimes how much of that has to do with the fact that we want to distinguish ourselves from the Americans, that we want, we have this inclination to say, well, freedom, that's an American value. If it's an American value and we don't want to be American, then we can't focus on freedom too much. How do you, do you think that that's true? Do you think Canadians have an uneasy relationship with the concept of freedom and liberty? No, I don't. I, I think what you said is partly true, I, 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 but, but not to the point that, that they're uneasy with freedom. I think Canadians are happy to talk about freedom and happy to mm -hmm. hold Canada as, as their right to do. We have that right mm -hmm. uh, as an exemplar of freedom. Of course we are. And, and uh, we shouldn't, again, get too self-righteous about it. I mean, the insofar as a distinction can be made between Canada and the U.S. in Canada's favor by that criterion of the exercise of freedom, it has to do with the legacy of slavery. And the reason we didn't have, I mean, we, we I, I, when slavery was abolished in the British Empire, I think there was something like 30 slaves in all of Canada. Uh, and and um, that was in 1830 or 31, I think. And um, and, and, and the reason is not that we were so virtuous, it's just the economic rationale for slavery was because people of African or Caribbean background were better at harvesting tropical crops like uh, cotton and tobacco than, than Europeans were. And, and it, it, that was the reason. We, we didn't have cotton in this country, so we didn't need African people to, to harvest them for us. And, uh, and so we were spared all that. But leaving that out, I would say the Americans have emphasized freedom more, and that is their individualism. And I think this does make many Canadians um, uneasy. I mean, the United States is, in many ways, a jungle. I mean, it's a magnificent country, but we must realize what we're dealing with. It, it, it is a place where the ethos is that anyone can succeed by hard work, anyone can achieve anything, including the leadership of the country. And indeed, most people who have been president of the United States are from very modest backgrounds, and including the current president. And, uh, and, um, and, and, that, and that, is the, that is the way it's organized, but it is understood that that means things are extremely competitive, 
and uh, and and those who succeed that is saluted and not resented uh, and those who fail are are not condemned for it but they are numerous and they're not accorded the same i think it is fair to say the same level of tangible compassion as they are in this country. Now, critics of Canada would say, we are so self-conscious and inept, we're afraid to compete properly, and we have to have a safety net that covers everyone. And it's like, life in Canada is like a, a, an elementary school children's prize day where everybody gets a prize for something. And, and, and there is a bit of truth to that too. These are caricatures, but there's some truth. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's a matter more of emphasis. I mean, we we have the good fortune, as, as we have to consider it to be, to be next to the U.S. I mean, consider that com and compare it to the status of Poland, for example, between Germany and Russia, with the result that from time to time, Poland disappeared completely as an independent country, and indeed for most of its history in the last several hundred years. But, but being next to the most powerful and uh, not not militarily but propagandistically assertive country in the world has made Canadians self-conscious and we would be superhuman if we were otherwise. We're, we're a good country but we're not a superhuman country so we, we naturally have that self-consciousness about the US but I don't think we're responding to it properly. We nitpick at the Americans, cavil at the Americans instead of doing something distinctive here which we could do which could be objectively a better society than the United States. Not a, not a greater or more important one, but a better one. What moment would you say in Canadian history, if there is a moment that has impacted Canadian civil liberties the most? Ah, that is, that is a puzzling question. Um, well, uh, let me see here. I, I, in some ways, I think the imposition of conscription in 1917, um, the Prime Minister, Robert Borden, uh, uh, the Conservative leader, uh, invited those members of the Liberal Party, which was led by Wilfrid Laurier, and invited them, those members who, who believed we should impose conscription to make a greater contribution to World War I, to join him in a coalition. This was done and the coalition won the election. And Laurier had told Borden that if he simply used his parliamentary majority to impose conscription, French Canadians would see it as the, the English Canadians using the fact that they had more people in this country than the French did to impose what they wanted on the French. And in, in effect, Quebec would just be waiting for the opportunities to secede from the country, that he, Laurier, would lose the leadership of French Canadians. Henri Bourassa would take it, and the, the French would be out eventually. Uh, but he said, if, if you hold an election or even a referendum, you'll win it. But at least I think there'll be enough of due process that I can sell the whole thing to my compatriots, French-speaking ones. And, and, and that is what happened. And he, and he said to his associates, including Mackenzie King and Ernest Lapointe, He'll win this election, but the Conservatives will not win an election in Quebec again for a very long time, which, which was true. It took until Mulroney. I mean, technically in 1958 they did, but that was the intervention of the provincial premier, Maurice Duplessis, because he wanted to settle old scores with the federal liberals. Uh, and, but that, that created this problem of a kind of 
Quebec bloc and the, and the Quebec reticence about whether they really were Canadians. And it also um, inadvertently fed this, uh, this view that is not really an Anglo-Saxon view, but it's popular in other places, that, that it starts from the premise collective rights take precedence over individual rights. And obviously up to a point that's true. I mean, the, the, the national interest ultimately has to prevail over any individual interest, but it is also a matrix for, for the curtailment and reduction and abuse of individual liberty. And so that would justify things like, uh, now it was nonsense, it was just puffery and propaganda, there's no substance to it, but the padlock law that Duplessis put in in 1937 in Quebec where you could padlock buildings where communist propaganda was created or stored. And it was rubbish. It was just a, 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 it was just a political gesture. A couple of buildings were closed. Nobody was arrested. A few cartons of communist pamphlets were taken away. That was the whole thing. Although the opponents pretend that it was some mighty act of repression reminiscent of what the Nazis were doing or Stalin or something. But the, the point is, once you get into that business that the collective interest takes precedence over the individual interest, you're going to have every, every group that can identify itself as an aggrieved community of something, whether it's linguistic, cultural, economic, or whatever it is, it, it gets into this sort of thing. And we're, we've had a lot of that in Canada recently. We had this identity politics where every conceivable group of aggrieved people is pandered to. And, and, and it's as if it was a it was, it was as if it was a cake and we're just carving out pieces for everybody and me if you go on with that long enough there's no cake left and, and that, that's a bit the problem we've got I think. you know as a philosopher i always like to be very careful with terms and concepts and so i want to ask you what you think a civil liberty is because i think that terms like that are thrown around a lot these days even what you were mentioning you know this idea of a collective interest well part of the the covid narrative has been that you know individuals should very clearly and, and efficiently dispense with their interest for the sake of the collective interest well figuring out what that is what the group is is a whole is a whole <coughs> issue right so what do you think a civil liberty is you know not what examples of it are but but what is it at its base? What is its nature? And if we can understand that a bit better, um, then why is it important? Well, it's freedom of speech. That's two questions, really. Yeah, no, it's freedom, <laughs> freedom of expression. Uh, but, you know, we, we're getting into hedges on that about, mm. you know, incitements to racial hatred and that sort of business. I mean, it's terribly distasteful when it happens, but people should be allowed quite a broad latitude to say what they want. And if some of it is offensive remarks about another group, religious or ethnic or political or whatever it is, I, I mean, I, th I think we have to be growing up and live with that up to a greater degree than we're now doing. And uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not an apologist for it. I don't engage in it myself, but I think we have to be careful about curtailing that for the reason that you implied that if you, if you start, saying yes of course uh, civil liberty except you can't do this this and this i mean you're you're going to end up with a, with a pretty thin and puny description of what the liberty applies to um uh, but to, to, to answer your question i think it's the freedom to do in doing meaning including speaking 
um, and, and writing expression, uh, anything you want, as long as you're not imposing on the, uh, on the same rights of other people, as long as, long as you know, you're not taking something away from someone else as you do that, if you say everyone has an equivalent right, equal right, and, and, uh, and, and as long as you're not offending the sort of imminent domain of the public interest. Now, this is where we get into the, a gray zone where, it, look, I, I accept it's possible to make the case that it is against the public interest to, for people to be allowed to say, I'm just making this up now. I, I hate German Canadians or something like this, you're saying. Yeah, I mean, no sane person would say such a thing, but some people do say that or things like it. I, I think we've got to watch it. I mean, because it's a slippery slope. We start curtailing that. We get into this these terribly absurd and unjust cases we've had, like the girl at Wilfrid Laurier University, where she was told that she was a discussion group leader, and if she gave a if she had her group listen to a speech of my friend Jordan Peterson, who's one of the great intellectuals in this country, and is a very admirable man in every respect. If, if, if she did that, it would be like playing a speech of Hitler's. Well, in the first place, it isn't. It has nothing to do with Hitler, nothing whatsoever. And it's an outrageous thing to say. And in the second place, there's nothing wrong with playing a speech of Hitler's either. He was a great historic figure. He's a wicked, evil man, but one of the gigantic figures of world history. And it's a good thing to play a speech of his, as long as people understand what he was saying and, and how obnoxious it is to the culture we live in. Let's talk a little bit about our respective disciplines, because I think over the coming year, we'll probably, we'll have further conversations, we'll probably participate in events to each other, with, with each other. Um, how do you think philosophy and history relate to one another? Well, very closely, because, um, I mean, we're, we're really, as far as I'm concerned, in my own status as a historian, is essentially a political historian. I mean, the the history of governmental entities and and in the last 500 years essentially the history of nation states and international organizations and um and and, and they broadly speaking do conform to some sort of philosophy in every, in every case now you know not every it need, need hardly be said for heaven's sakes but not every government uh, 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 you know, autonomous government, sovereign government, or national government, or government of a sovereign state, anyway. Not every one, and indeed, comparatively few of them, uh, have any standing whatsoever to claim that they've thought anything through in a philosophical way. But, but the fact is, whether they are sailing on a, on a, on a sea that they don't influence the, the currents in, or are charting and following a course that they've consciously selected, uh, they are enacting or responding to contemporary mm -hmm. philosophy, including to what extent, just what you said, to what extent are you accommodating individual human rights, to some extent are you pushing people together into a collective goal that everyone can identify with, even if they have to make sacrifices to, to, to get it. I mean, you know, all, all countries do that. I mean, you know, the United States held two elections during World War II. It didn't cease to be a, a democracy. People could say what they wanted, although in practice, if they made if they made pro-Japanese or pro-I mean, not as an ethnic group, but in terms of the war, 
statements favorable to the nation's declared enemies with which it was at war. There, there could have been problems, but uh, 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 but everyone sacrificed when the taxes went up and people, for, for one, there was no tax cheat. People happily paid 90% rates of income tax because it was to win the war. I, I, as a young person, I remember when President Eisenhower was asked at a press conference about his defense budget, which was a big share of the budget of those days. Um, he said, look, the, in the Cold War, the cost of victory is high, but the cost of defeat is everything. And if you can say that believably to a country, they will make sacrifices for it. But, but, but they do it voluntarily for a greater cause. But to get back to your point, yes, I think we're talking up to a point about the same thing. So you as a philosopher, I, I mean, you're, you know, ethics is part of philosophy, and, and, uh, but the rest, is, uh, uh, rest of philosophy is, is high. I mean, it's not for me to tell you your occupation, but in general, is in, is, is in other areas. I mean, it, it's sort of the, the, the study of knowledge and the development of knowledge. Well, it, it's the first part that I think is very much tied up in how, how societies work, how they're governed, and what countries do. Very interesting because in philosophy, we have both the history of philosophy, and I specialize in Aristotle and ancient philosophy. So there we're interested in, well, what did this particular historical philosopher of Alexander the Great, who was exactly, the political exactly. figure of the time. But we also have um, the philosophy of history. And so there, I think there's some very interesting questions about not just, well, well, what happened, but why did that happen? And why did that happen at that particular moment in history? And how do we understand history? Is it the coverage of an era? Is it the compilation of a group of people? Is it punctuated by time? How do we understand time? I mean, there are all kinds of, I think, very interesting philosophical questions about the nature of history and historical investigation itself. So it will yeah. be the, um, you know, the, the limitations, the myopia of hindsight. And you mentioned much earlier that we always have this tendency to put the rose colored glasses on when we look at the past, right? We have a tendency to, to, to glorify um, the past and forget some of the challenges or, or to forget. I mean, you've, you've been talking about the, the, the world wars quite a bit and we have a tendency to forget, I think that in those moments before the war, before the conclusion was determined, people didn't know how it was going to turn out. They endured, right? Incredible hardship and financial sacrifice and separation from loved ones and uncertainty and malnutrition and um, terrible destruction and millions of people dying. Absolutely. And they didn't know that it was going that there would be a resolution. They didn't know the 50s was going to come afterwards, you know, where there. Uh, and, and it's interesting to me hearing you talk about war, because I feel a little bit like we're in a war right now, although I'm not exactly sure who the enemy is. You know, in the past, I think it seems like it's been more clearly defined, although maybe that's just that those rose colored glasses coming on again. But um, if you think about what we're going through now, what do you see? What do you envision coming over the next year or so for Canadians? Do you think things will get markedly better? Do you think they will get worse? Do you think they will just change somehow? I think Canada's competitive status in the world is slipping. And hmm. uh, now this is a long way from philosophy. Now we're getting down to straight economics and political realities. Mm -hmm. uh, because we have a government that, that purports to believe we're in a post-national era and- um, Whatever that is. Well, the, I, I, to be fair to them, I think it means that we should 
de-emphasize the extent to which we're pursuing a national interest and trying to coordinate a sort of general human interest with everybody. I, I mean, I, it's it's well intentioned. I, I think I think there are some real problems with it, and also with the way they're trying to implement it. But but I I think their intentions are good, and um, uh, but the consequence of it is that that they in in de-emphasizing the national interest, they're pursuing economic policies that are not competitive for people to invest in. So we have Canadian, you know money made, generated by profitable enterprise in this country, leaving the country, and this country not attracting as much investment from outside mm. as the amount of investment Canadians are putting elsewhere, because they think other places are better places to invest in Canada. So the, the, the you know, that, that, if you examine it profoundly enough, is, it has its roots in what we might without being pretentious about it, describes a philosophical state of affairs. And, and, um, and, and I, I, we will pay for that because you always do eventually pay for things like that. And um, I mean, if, you, you, if you're losing money, eventually, eventually you go bankrupt one way or another. And um, <clears throat> the, uh, I think what we will have probably in the next election is a clear choice between a moderate left of center government, by which I mean moderately emphasizing the collective and the globalist, and a and a and a moderate conservative government, which we which I mean is just the opposite. I mean re-emphasizing the national interest, but without being jingoistic or xenophobic about it, you say. So I but I think it'll be a clear choice, but like any bifurcation, I mean you when a road, you know, comes to a division between two roads. I mean, at the start, the roads are right beside each other, but eventually they, they part quite widely. And I think it could be, I think we're coming up to that kind of a choice. And we haven't had that for, for some while. There's a in lot this. of responsibility in that, isn't there? We often think of ourselves as being entitled and what rights do we have? What freedoms do we have? But we also, in virtue of, of our citizenship, have responsibilities, not just to other people, not just to our country, but to think through these things and to spend time working on these issues in our mind. And, um, and, that, and of course, we get into the topic of education and how we form citizens to learn how to do those things and be good critical thinkers. And we can talk about that another time. But let me ask you one last question, a little bit of a different question. Uh, I'm sure many people will be very interested that you've joined the Democracy Fund and they know the things about you that are available in the, in the public sphere and you've had this very public life. Um, what's something that you could share with people that might not be so well known um, that, that, that you just to give us a little insight into who you are um, as a person and what makes you tick? I'm, I'm always... Um... I'm always a bit ill at ease answering questions like that. Me too. I, so it doesn't seem fair that I should ask one. <laughs> I, 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 I find it hard to believe that anyone would really be interested in the answer if I, if I had. Well, then their pressure's off. It doesn't matter what you say. <laughs> if, if, if I had the ability to produce an answer, let me think here. Um, uh, hmm. Now, let's make great. Are you asking me for an experience that I've had that was quite uh, uh, formative, or, or sure. are you asking me for a, 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 some 
line of thinking that I have adopted. Sure. Or what do you do with your spare time? What What do you really enjoy doing? What really well, gives look, you I'm a bit of joy to, in life? I'm going to. I'm afraid to reveal myself in my true colors as a terrible <laughs> dollar here, and not someone that any of your viewers would want to uh, have dinner <laughs> with or anything. But uh, I, 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 I either I really I, I read or I write. I mean, when other people are playing golf and, you know, you're sailing or skiing. Your interior decorating suggests that. Yeah, yeah. Well, these are all fine occupations, but I don't engage in them. And <laughs> uh, take a little bit of exercise because one should, you know, you want to keep everything working. But but I, I feel life is competitive enough without having, you know, competitive activities as your hobby, other than, other than chess, which doesn't do much for your physical exercise. Uh, <laughs> And and uh, but that's what I do, and I you know I, I I must say I find that I mean the room I'm sitting in, as you can see the books behind me, but it, it's a large room, and all of the walls are like that. There, mm. you know, they, the this room has ten thousand books in it, and it, it often happens if I don't have something I specifically have to do, I sit down and I see a book on the shelf, and I say, well, that'd be interesting, and then mm -hmm. move. And before you know it, it's four hours later in the morning, you know, and so it's, I wander around in that way, you know, and, and, but, but with that said, I must tell you for, for me, it, it, I think it does, I mean, it doesn't do anything for your physical tone or, you know, <laughs> muscles or anything like that, but, but for your peace of mind, which is terribly important to one's health, it does wonders. It's very relaxing and very I don't know if you feel this way, but books always feel like good old friends to me. Yes. Or I look yeah, at the spine. We all read a lot on screens and things, and, mm -hmm. and, and it's tremendously convenient. But it, but but you're right; it is quite different. It's not. It's it doesn't convey to you the same sense of involvement. And the historicity of it, speaking of history, when I look at the spine of a book, I remember if I was given it as a gift for Christmas, or if I had to search in three bookstores for four months to find it, or if it was a text for a course that I was dreading but turned out to love, you know, it, they all have these stories to them that's beyond the story that's contained within the pages. No, I, I, yeah, right, right behind me here are some books uh, owned by famous people. I've, I've, I believe the only book in the world signed by Winston Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt. Oh, which one is that? Can you point to it for us? Just give me, yeah, um, just give me a second here. Both Winston Churchill and Roosevelt, is that what you said? Yes, it, only one in the world, the best of my knowledge. Well, there's something right there. You should have led with here, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There. I don't know if you can. Can you see that? Uh, just just says, hold it again. It says, uh, you see at the top there is Churchill, and 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 below it's Roosevelt. It's amazing. Mr. Churchill gave it, brought it as a gift to his house in Hyde Park, New York, in 1943, and gave it to him. It says from Winston Churchill, and Roosevelt signed every book he put in his shelf. So there you have it. I mean, unfortunately, it's just autographs. There's no, not much of a message. In it. I have some. I have some with nice messages, but not with two signatures. But I, but I agree. I, I mean, I, I can't say that I. This is the first time I've opened this book in several months, you know. But, but, uh, but I'm just, I'm just agreeing with your point. All, a lot of these books have a story, not so exalted a story as that one, but, but mm -hmm. a story. You know, you're right. Somebody gave me that, and, you know, 20 years ago or something, mm -hmm. and it's, 
Well, Mr. Black, I just uh, careful on Welcome to the Democracy Fund. We're delighted to have you. I love nothing more than rigorous conversation and questions. And uh, I'm always happy to ask them and I'm always happy to engage in them and kind of go to battle about them over coffee and or whatever. And I'm just delighted that you've joined us. And thank you so much for inviting us into your library, into your book uh, and into your mind today. And uh, we're just very grateful to have you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Julie. It's been most uh, enjoyable and I hope we, I hope we do more of it.